The computer keeps correcting maestra to maestris, but it's not a correction. <laughs> I want everyone to know that. Google Docs. I don't want to call it Google. <laughs> oh, okay. It's just the, the world. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Juliana Cantarelli Vita. And I'm Skylar Weldon. And this is Massa, a podcast about Brazilian music and culture. Juliana and I are music professors and musicians. In each episode, we dive into a specific genre, song, artist, or issue in Brazilian music to try to understand how it works and what it means. Skylar, I thought we could pick up on and expand the conversation we had at the end of the last episode. In case you didn't listen, our last episode was about Maracatu de Baquivirado, an Afro-Brazilian music tradition from the state of Pernambuco that's rooted in the religion of Candomblé. And we ended our episode with a recording by Karina Bu. I remember that. Uh, what did you want to say about it? Well, part of that conversation focused on issues of gender in Maracatu de Baquivirado. Right. We talked about the fact that Karina Bu is a woman playing alfaia, the large bass drum-like instrument at the center of Maracatu de Baquivirado. And because many hold on to the notion that the alfaia is an instrument played by men, her playing it can be seen as transgressive or challenging of tradition. Right. But as you can imagine... It's actually a bit more complicated than that. It always is, right? <laughs> For example, check out this recording. That's not like the Karina Buh recording at all. Here, instead of popular music with Alfaya, we have what sounds like an actual Maracatu Nação. Yes, that's the group Nação do Maracatu Encanto do Pina, a Maracatu from the city of Recife in Pernambuco that was founded in 1980 by the midwife and Yalorixá, Dona Maria de Sonia. But there's a big difference here. In our last episode, I don't remember having heard a female maestri. Mestra? Mestra, yes, that's the word. And you are correct. Um, last time we only heard examples with male mestres. The mestra of Encanto do Pina is Mestra Joana Cavalcanti. She was the first mestra of a uh, Maracatu nation. Really? Really. And not only 
Is she a trailblazer in terms of her role? She also created a movement to fight for gender equity within Maracatu de Baque Virado, which is called Movimento Baque Mulher. So that's why this episode is called Baque Mulher. Indeed. The word mulher, for those filling out their Portuguese bingo cards, means woman. So I thought we could spend this whole episode discussing gender roles in Maracatu de Baque Virado, both historically and in the present. Oh, that sounds good to me. And we're lucky enough to have a couple of special guests to help us out. Yes. First up, well, I'll let her introduce herself. I'm Mestra Joana Cavalcante. I was born in Recife, Pernambuco, in the Comunidade do Bode in Pina, because I was born at home. I'm the Mestra of Nação do Maracatu in Canto do Pina, coordinator and creator of the Baque Mulher Movement of Female Empowerment and coordinator and creator of the group Mazuca da Quixaba. I'm the Mãe Pequena of Lea Sheo Shun Den and the mother of João Jai and Jade and of many other children in my heart. And we also have with us a scholar who has recently completed a historical and ethnographic project on Baquivirado. My name is Amy Catherine Medvick. My pronouns are she and her. I am a white Canadian researcher currently completing my PhD in Latin American studies at Tulane University in New Orleans. My academic background uh, was first in jazz performance and then later um, in ethnomusicology before I came to Latin American studies. Before we get into Master Joana's story and what she's doing with Maracatu, how about we talk a bit about the gender dynamics in Maracatu de Baque Virado? which in some instances is also called maracatunação. Amy Medvik talked with us about the role women have played in maracatu historically, or rather how a particular narrative has been constructed around the roles women have played in maracatu. There are, caveat, some historical sources that suggest none of these roles were always as they are claimed to be today. That has possibly changed over the years. However, as it stands, What is understood to be traditional is that drumming was only for men. And that's a, a social structure that comes from candomblé ritual, that men perform on the drums. The dancers can be women or men tend to be women more often, but they can be both. And of course, I'm using very like heteronormative cisgender, you know, and I don't mean those to be absolute, but that is the language of these communities more or less. But uh, although drumming is understood to be reserved for men, women have occupied important positions in the nação. On the flip side of that, a little bit more controversial though, is the notion that the focal point or the sort of top position in the Maracatu hierarchy is the queen. And this isn't as often asserted as tradition as the male prerogative to the, to the drums. But it is often enough. And just to remind listeners, queens of Maracatu are in charge of the nation, of the nação. 
it's not a symbolic position. Amy argues that we can productively theorize some of the tensions and debates around gender roles less as essentialized notions of who fills which roles in the marakatu. And more in terms of notions of tradition and innovation. One of the primary ways in which I try to make sense of what shapes the world of marakatu nasan right now is an orientation towards tradition or towards innovation. Like, I think all Nassoins are practicing part of the tradition, and then they also have certain ways they innovate. It might not be aesthetically, it might be in other areas. No one cannot, you know, be connected to their past and yet also change. Like, that's just existing. For example, in the last episode, we discussed the group Nação do Maracatu Porto Rico, which uses atabakis in their performances. That's an example of an aesthetic innovation. But that caveat aside, like, I'm looking at how people orient themselves towards those ideas of, like, prioritizing tradition and maintaining tradition or prioritizing innovation. And that both are ways of trying to vie for survival in a context of very limited resources for nações who tend to be very low in the socioeconomic hierarchy. Um, and... What's interesting is that the claim to being the first to have women playing drums is one that's more likely to be claimed by a nasao that's oriented towards innovation and to be like completely like glossed over and never mentioned by a nasao that is oriented towards tradition, even if I can find evidence that that very traditional nasao, in fact, had women performing with them first. Well said. It's so important to remember the context in which maracatu is practiced. Yeah, Amy talked about this too. You know, in the academic world, we tend to right now have this approach to tradition that either problematizes it as essentialist and reductive and not permitting change, or that idealizes it as a form of resistance. And... I don't seek to negate the grains of truth in both of those ideas, but rather to kind of integrate them and also bring things back to like, okay, this isn't like a theoretical discussion about, you know, are we going to be traditional? Are we going to innovate within this this practice? You know, we're, we're dealing with a very, like extremely marginalized community in a marginalized region of a marginalized country that practice a religion that's extremely discriminated against. That actually helps me understand how these narratives get cemented as tradition, regardless of the historical record. Yeah, and as we'll hear shortly, even if uh, there is a precedent for women playing drums, it doesn't mean that women of later generations didn't have to overcome the restrictions that became cemented over time. Speaking of which, Amy's research shows that some of the strict gendering of these roles is, in part, connected to the interventions of scholars and scholar-adjacent folks that showed interest in Maracatu Jibaki Viradu from the outside. The gender one is a big one of, of looking at the ways that scholars might have contributed, for example, to the rise of the queen um, as this preeminent figure, uh, the ways that they might have framed the beginning of seeing a lot more women enter the tradition as this sort of huge rupture where I'm, I'm finding a few references that show that 
there were women playing maracatuna some before that and sometimes even performing on the street though it was not common but it might not have been a hard and fast tradition that's a like a thing scholars love to claim because it makes their their arguments sound so concrete and scientific and then and then those ideas and discourses become how you establish legitimacy and then that becomes adopted by you know, members of the Nassoins and being like, okay, yes, we have this thing called tradition and it used to be like this and now it's like this. And so it's all very complicated. Just as the interaction between Maracatu Nassoins and people from outside of the Nassau may have contributed to the cementing of certain practices as tradition, it also may have contributed to certain ruptures later on. There's this massive influx of people coming from all kinds of places into the Nassoins so that now a lot of the, the membership of even the most traditional Nassoins are white identified folks from the middle classes of Hasifi or people that are visiting from England or the US or Canada just for Carnival and have a connection that then they you know can perform with these groups. And that of course brings with it certain expectations about gender roles particularly at that moment, right, you know, in the 90s, where it was like a, a real moment of feminist discourse in North America. So a certain expectation for gender parity in terms of, of performing on the drums. And so that's another change that is very deeply wrapped up in that relationship with people from outside of the community. At the same time, I've seen photographs of, you know, a woman I don't know much about her, but very, definitely a very dark-skinned woman of African descent performing with Leon Cordoado in 1989 before anyone was talking about this. And, and I've heard stories that there have been women who knew how to play all the instruments but just didn't perform on the street. They might even leave rehearsals, even maybe going back to the 1940s. So I don't want to chalk it all up just to this sort of, like, white middle-class transnationalist feminist agenda. There are also women in the community who want to perform on drums and it means a lot to them to be able to do so. Um, but that is definitely a huge part of what has driven the change in gender roles. These issues are really complicated. They are. Which is why we want to highlight the work of Mestre Joana specifically. Yes, let's hear some of her story. Let's. <laughs> As we talked about last time, and as Amy mentioned just now, Maracatuna Sao is connected deeply to Candomblé. Master Joana told us about this. I was born and raised in Candomblé, in a terreiro of Candomblé Nagu. All of my family comes from the Nago tradition. I was born into it. As I said before, I was born at home, and who delivered me was my grandmother, who is a Yalorixá, a daughter of Oshun, and Dona Maria de Sonia, my great-grandmother, also 
Ayal Risha, and a daughter of Yemanja. Both of them delivered me with my aunt, a daughter of Yansan. So I was born at home at the hand of three Yalorishas. My father is a Babalorisha, my mother is a Yalorisha, and is a Yabase who is the person responsible for cooking the foods for the Orishas to generate a share. My uncles and my brothers are all Ogans, and the trajectory of my entire life has happened in Candomblé of the Nago tradition. Without repeating too much of what we've discussed in other episodes, I'll just mention that Yalorisha is the Yoruba term for mother of the saint, and refers to, essentially, the priestess within Candomblé. So, Mestra Joana is from a family of religious leaders. Yes, and she mentioned that her father is a Babalorisha, which is the male equivalent of Yalorisha. Wow, so she is really steeped in this tradition. And this is very relevant to our discussion of Maracatu, because as we talked about in the last episode, Maracatu Nação is Candomblé. Actually, Mestra Joana explained that, too. And that's also how I began my history in Maracatu, which is also Candomblé. One cannot be unlinked from the other. So Maracatu was born in the Tejero of Candomblé. That's what makes it Nação. And it was in this Tejero that I was raised. So Maracatu Nação and Candomblé are both connected. And since I was in the womb, I was already in both. In addition to being a Babalorixá, Mestre Joana's father was the mestre of the group Nação Encanto do Pina. Aha, so did she grow up around the Maracatu music? Yes. So is that how she ended up becoming the mestre of the group? Yes and no. Uh, what do you mean? Well, because there was no precedent in the collective memory of a woman taking over as a mestra, it was not assumed that she would do so. Ah, I imagine it surprised some people. And in some ways, it surprised her. No, Look, for me, it was surprising too. Everything happened very naturally and thus sort of unexpected and expected. Why? Because I didn't understand anything about oppression, racism, sexism. Living in the periphery, it's a conversation that never happened. This was also a time when there wasn't so much technology, so it was a subject that didn't reach everyone. Today, it is easier to have access to this conversation. When Mestra Joana refers to the periphery, in Portuguese, the periferia, she's talking about the literal geography of Recife as well as the social status of marginalized people in Recifense life. Yes, in some parts of Brazil, the word periferia is used almost as a euphemism to describe the communities that disenfranchised people have constructed in urban centers. These communities are often detached from the infrastructure of the wealthier parts of the cities. That includes infrastructure for education and information sharing. So, at that time, I didn't understand anything about races, sexes. Having been born and raised in Maracatu, in Candomblé, I also passed through all of these spaces naturally and always played all of the instruments. It's taught that women can't play instruments. So what remained was just obeying and doing what you were told for your whole life. We couldn't touch the instruments and the space that was reserved for me and for all of the women was to dance. Because for me, it was always said that women were born to swirl our 
skirt, not play. So I went along respecting all of this out of principle, out of respect for my elders and without understanding these oppressions around me. And when my father assumed the role of mestre for Nação Encanto do Pina, it was a time that women were already playing instruments, but still in that process of acceptance, that we know still hasn't been accepted, but... It's so interesting that Mestre Joana both accepted the way things were and also went against some of those unspoken rules. Yeah, it really highlights how that tension between innovation and tradition that Amy Medvik discussed might play out in a specific person's story. So how did she go from accepting the established gender roles to taking over as maestra? Did she become conscious of the limitations of these conventions and transgress them intentionally? Actually, not really. So she had always played the drums and was certainly technically capable of taking the reins, but she didn't do so in order to make a political statement at all. Here's how she describes it. So I always played all of the instruments. I helped him as I could, teaching and things like that. And my father had some personal, spiritual, family problems. And he had to move away from the group. And with his absence, there was the problem of not having someone already selected to take his place. It could have been my brother or my uncles, but because I already had mastery over all of the instruments, I always was really good at all of the instruments. Music, percussion was always present in me, even as a woman. But my father denied this, even though I was naturally mastering everything and had already helped when he had to step aside. My Alorixá, together with my great-grandmother, they decided to throw the car shells to determine if I would take the mantle. We should explain this. If folks listen to our episode about Candomblé Nago... Which is the same tradition within Candomblé that Mestre Joana practices. Right. Well, in that episode, we heard about this, how the singer and composer Zé Manuel visited a Candomblé Tejero where the Yalorisha used the cowrie shells to determine which Orisha he was a child of. Yes, the cowrie shells, or buzius, are one of the methods that the Yalorisha can use to communicate with the Orishas to get guidance. So because Maracatuna Son is born of Candomblé... It is a candomblé practice that guides things like leadership of the maracatu. Exactly. In my innocence, I said, I asked, why even throw the covers? I, al I already play, I already help when he can't do it, and I've been doing this my whole life. But they threw the covers, and Odisha said that I had to continue, that I had to stay there in front of the group. I said, ah, I know that I really have to stay, because for me, it was natural. For me, it was playing and doing what I had done my whole life. Wow, so the Orishas chose her to lead. Which kind of makes sense, considering she was also most qualified to take over. <laughs> right, except for the fact that some believed she shouldn't even have been eligible by virtue of her gender. Right, yeah, which is where the challenges really started for her. And then I was surprised that the first thing to happen when I took over the Nassau was that the older drummers left the Nassau because they didn't want to be led by a woman and they didn't understand at all why that had happened. 
I thought that it was a personal problem that they all had with me. I didn't understand that it was sexism. And even so, I continued. Oh no. So suddenly the group was without a large portion of its drum corps? Exactly. What did they do? Well, one of the amazing things is that Mesha Joana was already involved in many social projects in her community, Comunidade do Bode, Favela do Bode. And even though some of the men from Encanto do Pina deserted the group, other people were able to step in and help. Before taking over the Nassau, I already had social projects with young people and children. The percussion project, Filhas de Oxumopará, had already come from a series of projects that I started. So when I took over Nação Encanto do Pina and the drummers left, these kids that I had already worked with, they all came, they arrived together. And various other people who came from elsewhere to enjoy Recife's Carnaval also were touched and started to make an effort to help. That's amazing. More than that, the group actually had some of its great successes in Recife's Carnaval parade competition. And so, when I brought the Nassau to Carnaval, the first year was 2009. I took over in 2008, but my first parade was in 2009. And Nassau Encanto do Pina had never qualified. It had been declassified four times in a row. It didn't have any instruments, it didn't have anything. It was totally abandoned. And I managed to uplift the Nassau that year, and in the first year I was in charge, we won promotion to the first division. So there was ecstasy in the community, because a Nassau that had never succeeded with anything, and with the rejection of all of those men that had left, we managed in 2009 to be the champions of the second division and get promoted to the first. In case anyone is confused, Maracatu Nações compete in a Carnaval procession every year. They are judged on their costumes and the music and everything. There are multiple divisions, like in Brazilian soccer, where the poorest performers from the first division are relegated to the second, while the best performers of the second division are promoted to the first. And in her first year leading the group, Mestre Joana accomplished promotion, something that hadn't ever happened before. Well, it sounds made up. It sounds like a movie. I know, but it's not. It's real life. Juliana, at the beginning of this episode, you mentioned that Mestre Joana created a movement called Baki Mulier. Which is the name of this episode. Right. So where does Baki Mulier come in in her story? Through her experiences as a Mestre and all the prejudices that she experienced as a woman Mestre among people who believed that drumming was an activity reserved for men, she started to become conscious of the sexism around her. Here's what she had to say about it. And so... Everything surfaced at the same time. 
I started to understand, started to have awareness of the sexism and racism around me. And that is the struggle I still find myself in. And parallel to that, because we are going to bring in Baki Mulher now, parallel to that, as I said, it was the year that I was in that process of gaining acceptance for women to play drums and break the taboos. It was a very unhealthy and difficult space for women to be in the percussion sections of the maracatus, of the nação. Because as much as we were there, the looks of repression, the looks of here is not your place, were constant. Whatever we did was motivated by something completely unnecessary, you know? And I was very upset by that. I was always very uneasy. I had the idea of, no, I want a space that we can play drums, but that we can smile. Because within the maracatus, we couldn't even smile. So I spoke to the girls, the female drummers that passed between the, the two nações here in Pina, that are Nação Porto Rico and Nação Encanto do Pina. So I invited the ones closest to me, and I had the idea that we would have a day for us to play just us, just the women. And I said, I'm going to give it the name Baque Mulher because just women are going to play the drums. I remember that last episode we explained that one of the side effects of the maracatumania is that a number of groups not associated with candomblé tejeros began to spring up. Is Baque Mulher an example of one of these? Actually, Baque Mulher exists within and between both worlds. It's not associated with a specific candomblé house and not officially part of the Maracatu nation that Mestre Joana leads, but it still has its roots in both Nação do Maracatu em Canto do Pina and Nação do Maracatu Porto Rico. So Baque Mulher is the offspring of these nações? More or less. But it's also kind of a social project, it sounds like. Yes, it's both a percussion group, a space where women can play all of the instruments of Maracatu without being side-eyed or worse by the men, and it's also a space to talk about these issues. And for us to not have any problems with the community that was already hosting two nações, we are going to do this in Recife Antigo, Old Recife, because that is a touristic space. Old Recife is a touristic space. And it had lots of percussion groups. It still does. So we went there. Oh, wow. She moved the rehearsals right out of the community. Exactly. Was that because the touristic nature of Old Recife meant that there were already women playing alfayas and such, so no one would think twice? Or the fact that they weren't among their neighbors, so they didn't have to explain themselves? Both of those things. But also, there are already two maracatu nações in the Comunidade do Body. And as we heard last episode... Um, getting all, all of these folks playing at the same time is a very loud endeavor. Ah, so there are some practical concerns as well. Yep. In fact, in Old Recife, lots of percussion groups rehearse on Sunday. So how about we listen to one of the songs that Maestra Joana composed for Baque Mulher? Great idea! Let's listen to the song So Mulher Negra Empoderada. The title translates to I'm an Empowered Black Woman. So Mulher Negra Empoderada Trago a seda, nação na Feministas do baque virado Mulheres guerreiras tocando tambor Feministas do baque virado Mulheres 
bandeiras tocando tambor Não há violência, é machismo qualquer que cale meu tambor Eu sou baque mulher Não há violência, é machismo qualquer que cale meu tambor Eu sou baque mulher Tocando tambor, eu trazendo axé do baque virado, guerreiras mulher Tocando tambor, trazendo axé Do baque virado, guerreiras mulher Sou mulher, negra empoderada Trago a serreta, nação na vez Vem me desfaz, o baque virado Mulheres guerreiras Before we dive into the specific lyrics, let's talk a little bit about the issues of female empowerment in Afro-Brazilian communities. Great idea. As we talked about in our Candomblé episodes, some Afro-Brazilian religions, such as Candomblé, offer counter-narratives and alternative social structures to the sexism and racism that pervades Brazilian society. Exactly. For example, women in Candomblé frequently occupy important positions as the Alurixás and the Akekeres that garner both power and respect. And as Amy Medvik discussed in Maracatunação, women occupy the most powerful position as queens. With Baki Mulher, Mestra Joana and the other participants expand on this notion by celebrating and generating female empowerment through Afro-Brazilian cultural forms. Ah. Highlighting these two valences of her identity at the same time is not only important, but it, it reflects her actual lived experiences. It's what legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw has termed intersectionality. And, of course, North Americans don't have a monopoly on the intersectional thinking. Um, the Brazilian scholar, activist, and politician Lelia Gonzalez has written... Quote, it is undeniable that feminism, both in theory and practice, has played a fundamental role in the struggles of women. It has presented new questions, stimulated the formulation of groups and networks, and encouraged the search for a new way of being a woman. But a reading of feminist texts and an analysis of feminist practice reveals a kind of forgetfulness about the racial question. So let's go through the lyrics of this song one at a time. Let's. The first line is Sou mulher negra empoderada Trago o axé da nação nago Feministas do baque virado Mulheres guerreiras tocando tambor Which translates to I am an empowered black woman I bring Ashe from Nação Nago, feminists from Baquiviradu, women warriors playing drums. A few things to highlight here. First, she's connecting everything to the Nação Nago tradition of Candomblé. Right. As you mentioned, Bakimule is not officially tied to a specific Candomblé house. But that doesn't mean it's not rooted in Candomblé. Exactly. So when she brings Ashe from Candomblé, it's part of the tradition of Maracatu as an expression of Candomblé in the streets. But there's another aspect as well, which some would argue is not traditional, though that's in dispute. She is asserting her own status as a black feminist from inside the tradition. Right. As we saw last time, it's very common for Mestres to sing about the nação, which she does to a, a degree. But more than that, she's singing about herself. She's empowering herself despite all of the ways that she has been marginalized through racism and sexism. 
The structure is important too, because even though the first line is about her, the second line pluralizes that experience for all of the young women, women of all ages, playing with her. Yeah, they sing feminists from Baque Virado, women warriors playing drums. And in so doing, they basically become those women warriors. Yeah, and in fact, Feministas de Baque Virado, or FBV, or FBV, is how they sign off on group messages on social medias and in other communities. The next part is all done in call and response, and it seems to be grounded in that experience that Mestre Joana described when she took over the Nasson. Yes, she brought this group to, for lack of a better term, a safe space for these women to express themselves musically. So she sings, Não há violência ou machismo qualquer que cale meu tambor, eu sou baque mulher. In English, there is no violence nor any sexism that can silence my drums. I am Bakimwile. Here, the call and response is used again to assert an identity and take a stand against the exclusions that these musicians face in many so-called traditional contexts. And Bakimwile comes to stand for something more than the name of the group, is a social commentary and a statement of group belonging. So can you talk to us a little bit about the setting of these lyrics? To my untrained ears, it sounds a lot like the setting of Bakivirado we listened to last time. That's because it is. It starts with the call and response between Mestre Joana and the group unaccompanied. And when the lyric repeats, we hear the shamada, the, the snare drums that call the alfayas to start playing. When they get to the second stanza, they begin the turn or the vira sound that gives the genre its name. Aha, uh-huh. so it's, it's very similar to the other maracatuna sound after all. Yes, it seems like your ears were more trained than you thought. <laughs> well, you, you trained them. So, um, Mestre Joana actually talked about how she wrote this song at the moment that she identified as a black woman, when she understood what it was to be empowered. Let's talk about one more Bakimulia song. Great. In addition to that one, Mestre Joana wanted to highlight her song, Maria da Penha é Forte. Maria da Penha é Forte, é forte pra valer, com sua força e coragem fez a lei acontecer. Maybe 
maybe even more than So Mulher Negra Empoderada, this song takes a very black feminist position. Yes. Actually, let's listen to Mestre Joana explain how this song came about. Every Sunday, we got together, went down there, and we played our rhythms, smiled, joked around. When it was over, we had a beer. The men at that time, it wasn't easy. The men wanted to be there, meddling. So it was that whole process that we already know about, totally exhausting. And it was in those moments that they started empowering themselves and each other. Also, due to the fact that Mestre Joana's work has always had a social orientation, she was attracting a lot of young women to the group. She told us that they lined up at her door, waiting to accompany her to Old Hasifi. So every Sunday, I went and took all of the girls from the community. And when it ended, I offered a snack and we sat there chatting. And in these conversations that we had, it came up naturally. The stories of abuse, the stories of difficulties of the day-to-day here in the community, in their homes. And that started to trouble me, made me very uneasy. They told me those stories and I was absorbing them without a solution, without finding a solution. Because we are talking about stories of very serious abuse of the daughters of gang members. How do we grapple with that? Wow. Yes, it's incredible. So how did she grapple with this situation? Well, actually, she used the skills she already had as a musician. How can I help these young people and these children when these oppressions, the aggressions were coming from that kind of violence from the gangs? We know what the community is like, right? I always say that talking about feminism, we have to work in two spheres. There are two spheres. There is the feminism of the periphery, black feminism, and there is the other feminism. So to grapple with our own reality here is very different. And I got very upset not knowing what to do, how to give these girls the message that what they were experiencing was abuse and it was wrong and they could escape from it. But how could I do this without putting myself in the line of fire, without putting myself and my whole family at risk? So that's where I got the idea of using the songs of Baki Mulher. Because through the songs, there was something that the women and the girls, those deep into Maracatu, that they absorbed. They are going to hear it naturally. And it is something that they would take with them. They take home this message and pass it on. It's kind of incredible how she solved that puzzle. Approaching issues of domestic violence and gender inequalities through music, through maracatu songs. Yeah, it is. Let's go through the song a little bit to hear how she does it. Well, first there is the title. Maria da Penha is a woman from the city of Fortaleza in the northeastern state of Ceará. She suffered horrible abuses from her husband over the years, and in 1983, he shot her while she was sleeping and left her paralyzed from the waist down. And despite all of this, there were no laws to protect her. It took until 2002 for him to be prosecuted, and even then, he spent less than a year in prison. Yeah. Partly, this is because Brazil didn't have any laws to protect women, They were treated as their husband's property, not legally allowed to open bank accounts or file for divorce until a few decades ago. 
And of course, there were no protections for women in their own homes. As a result of all of this, Maria da Peña fought for a change in the laws to protect women from domestic abuse. Finally, in 2006, President Lula da Silva signed the Maria da Peña Law, which offered some of the necessary protections. And this is exactly what Mestre Joana is singing about here. Maria da Peña e forte, e forte para valer. Com sua força e coragem, fez a lei acontecer. Maria da Peña is strong. She's really strong. With her strength and courage, she made the law happen. But Mestre Joana actually frames this information as part of her own education and presumably the education of some of the other women in the group. Yeah, she says, A lei Maria da Penha, agora eu já sei. 11.340 do ano 2006. The Maria da Penha law, now I know, law number 11,340 from the year 2006. It's creating an awareness for this relatively new law. It was passed only two years before the founding of Baque Mulher. And it's information that, sadly, is still useful for women who find themselves in an abusive situation. So not only does the song highlight the injustices, but it points to something that might help. Later, the song becomes more of a group rallying cry, adopting the first-person plural, we, to assert the power these women have as a group. Women of the entire world, with the tenacity to overcome, let's unite our efforts and make it happen. So just like Maria da Peña made the law happen, we can do something about our situation. And they go on to sing, we have the right to freedom, the right to live, the right to overcome. The structure here is the same, so I want to highlight a different aspect of the performance. What's that? The melody. Maria da Penha é forte, é forte pra valer. Com sua força e coragem fez a lei acontecer. Okay, it's fairly straightforward and potentially easy to remember as a melody. Is that is that what you wanted to highlight? Well, it's all of those things, but it's also very similar to the melody of a famous nursery rhyme called Pirulito que bate bate. Listen! Pirulito que bate bate, pirulito que já bateu. Quem gosta de mim é ela, quem gosta dela sou eu. Wow, they are similar. So who's that singing? That's my mom. Aw, just like <laughs> she would sing for you when you were little? Yep. <laughs> but everyone knows this song, so everyone would be able to focus on the lyrics and probably memorize the new song more quickly. That is brilliant. Isn't it? So how about to end things, we let Mestra Joana describe the transformation that this song caused for Baki Mulher. There are two songs that bring with them. All of them bring a story, a strength, but there are two especially which are Maria da Penha é forte and Sou Mulher Negra Empoderada. Maria da Penha é forte because it was the first militant song of female empowerment. It was the first lyric that arrived. I went to this course and there was a person there speaking about their project and she started to sing the first phrase of Maria da Penha, talking about Maria da Penha. 
And I started to put things together, and this lyric showed up. Maria da Penha é forte. It was the first lyric. At that time, I was very upset, thinking about how I was going to tell the girls from the community about this law, how I was going to tell them that they couldn't just accept being abused like that. It was the first song that turned Bac Mulher into the Bac Mulher movement of female empowerment, because before that, it was just the Maracatu group Bac Mulher. Masa is written, produced, and edited by Juliana Cantarelli-Vita and me, Skylar Weldon. Special thanks this week to Mestra Joana Cavalcanti, Dr. Amy Medvec, Aide Araújo, and Julia Menezes Lima Moreira. You can find links to Mestra Joana's work in the description. For episode transcripts, please visit our website, essefoimasa.com. That's E-S-S-E-F-O-I-M-A-S-S-A dot com. You can email us at essefoimasa at gmail.com. That is also our handle on Instagram and Twitter. Our intro music is by Sonda Massa, and our outro music is by Sammy Bananas. Please join us in two weeks for the first of two episodes on Maracatu Jibaki Soltu. Until then, esse foi massa. But if you want to have egg. Was that a thunder? That was thunder. Holy. I mean, that was really loud. <laughs> <laughs> Are you okay? Because I personally do a moment. Yeah, I'm fine. That really startled me, though. <laughs>